Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. We're here today with Dr. Jessica Taylor, an Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of General Internal Medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine and Boston Medical Center. And we're here to talk about strategies to increase the uptake of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis among people who inject drugs. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include explain appropriate screening for both injection-related and sexual-related HIV risk in people who inject drugs, or PWID, as a prelude to counseling for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, and describe the barriers to PrEP uptake among PWID and both provider-level and system-level strategies that may improve PrEP access. Dr. Taylor has disclosed that she has no relationship with any product or service relevant to today's discussion. She has also indicated that she will not be referencing the unlabeled or unapproved use of any drugs or products relevant to today's discussion. Dr. Taylor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you analyze the current data about HIV infection, PrEP, and people who inject drugs, or as I said, PWID. What I'd like to do today is translate how some of that information can be used in the clinic. So let me ask you to start us out, if you would please, doctor, with a patient scenario. Sure. So let's consider the case of a 25-year-old gentleman with severe opioid and methamphetamine use disorders who injects both substances. He also has a history of chronic hepatitis C virus infection, and he presents as a walk-in to your substance use disorder bridge clinic, saying that he is interested in talking about buprenorphine naloxone. Here's a patient who is injecting both opioids and methamphetamine. How do you go about assessing his HIV risk? I would say that assessing HIV risk should really be a standard part of any substance use disorder intake assessment. This is always the case, but especially now in the midst of current HIV outbreaks among people who inject drugs. And assessing HIV risk involves not only asking about injection-related practices, but also asking about sexual practices and sexual risk. And that's really important. I think as addiction providers, we often tend to focus on the injection practices, but we really need to ask a comprehensive history to understand the patient's overall risk. You're recommending getting an injection history as well as a sexual history. How do you do that? What types of questions should a provider ask? So to assess injection risk, I like to ask about specific injection practices. How do you inject? Where do you get equipment? How often do you reuse your own equipment? How often do you share needles? And how about sharing other injection equipment like hookers or cotton? And you'll notice that the way I phrase those questions is not, do you ever share? But instead, how often? The reason I do that is that it really opens the door and normalizes a positive response so that patients aren't fearful of disclosing a behavior that may have risk to their provider. And we know that that now more than ever, it's very important to create a safe space for patients to disclose sharing of injection equipment because in the era of short-acting fentanyl, which requires many more injection events per day compared to traditional heroin, our patients are having to inject in some cases six, eight, 10, or more times per day. And it's really just not possible for syringe service programs to put enough clean needles on the street to prevent all shared injection events. It's just a mathematical certainty. We are also seeing increasing rates of polysubstance injection And by that, I mean people who inject not only an opioid like heroin or fentanyl, but also a stimulant like cocaine or methamphetamine. And this, again, increases the number of injections per day and makes it much more difficult to use a clean needle every single time, one needle for one injection. So what if a patient says to you, 
Oh, no, I never share. I'd like to follow that up by asking, well, how about if you're really sick? Meaning, how about if you're in severe opioid withdrawal? And if they say, no, I never share, even if I'm in severe opioid withdrawal, I sometimes follow that up and say, well, how about just with your partner? Because it is a very common practice to share injection equipment with just a single partner. And of course, that does have risk, although patients do not always see that as having risk. So it's an opportunity to have a conversation. What about assessing sexual-related risk? This brings us back to sexual history taking 101. So I, I like to ask, are you sexually active or do you have sex? And who are your partners? That's a really open-ended question that gives patients the chance to share with you who their partners are. And I like to ask it that way because I think in our medical training, a lot of us got taught to ask more close-ended questions. So I know when I was in medical school, we were taught to say, do you have sex with men, women, or both? And, you know, at the time, I think that was normalizing sex with same-sex partners. But we know that that's actually not inclusive of transgender partners, of non-binary people. And so, again, I find it helpful to use open-ended questions just to give patients the opportunity to share exactly who their partners are. And in my clinic, I also screen for transactional sex by asking patients if they ever trade sex for money, drugs, a place to stay, or something else. And the reason I do that is that we know that exchange sex or transactional sex, whether that is formal sex work or whether it is more informal, such as being expected to provide sex in exchange for a couch to sleep on, for example, we know that those situations can be associated with HIV risk behaviors, such as not using condoms or sex with partners who might be at higher risk for HIV themselves. And when talking about topics like this, I really recommend knowing your local context. It's incredibly important to know what language people in the community and patients are using so that you have a conversation in a comfortable, non-stigmatizing way. Could you give us an example, doctor? Where I work, the phrase doing dates is common slang for sex work and exchange sex. And so I could ask a patient, are you doing dates? And they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The other piece of this that I'll say is incredibly important is to explain to patients why you're screening. We want to be really careful not to ask personal questions like this just for the sake of knowing or having the information. I explain to my patients that the reason I ask is that I'm seeing a lot of new HIV cases and I'd like to know about their behaviors so that I can help them figure out how to reduce their risk. And so likewise, when I screen for condom use, I ask patients if they use condoms none of the time, some of the time, or all of the time. Again, normalizing a response from someone who might use condoms none of the time and just opening the door for them to share that with me in, in the clinic space. So overall, I would say that the key principles here are to assess both injection and sexual risk behaviors. To share with your patients why you're asking is so that we can give them the tools that they need to protect themselves and to incorporate this in a routine way into your clinic visits so that we don't miss opportunities to help patients reduce their own HIV risk. So you ask questions in this open-ended way, which is great. And let's say the patient tells you, I only share injection equipment with my girlfriend and she doesn't share with anyone else or have sex with anyone else. So consequently, I'm not particularly worried about HIV. Is that something you commonly hear and how do you respond to it? Sure, so this is something that I hear very often in my clinic. And I think we often see gaps between patients' self-perceived HIV risk and the risk behaviors that they describe to us. So this is a great opportunity. We've opened the door. The patient has shared about the behaviors that they do, which is excellent. And our role here is really to educate patients about HIV risk, about the local context. So in my case, in Boston, Massachusetts, we are in the midst of an HIV outbreak among people who inject drugs. And it's a chance to share with the patient what it is that we're seeing, what it is that we worry about and then zero in on strategies that they can use to prevent infection. This here is also a clear opportunity to talk to the patient about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, or post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, and to offer those interventions alongside other strategies. 
And then I would say as well that if a patient says no thanks, they're not interested in a medication like PrEP or PEP, it's an opportunity to talk to them about routine HIV testing, even if they're not interested in taking a medication once a day to prevent HIV. Uh, With all due respect, Dr. Taylor, it seems like you're asking the healthcare providers for people who inject drugs to do quite a lot. Starting opioid use disorder treatment, addressing HIV prevention and routine testing, explaining PrEP, addressing PEP. That's a lot you're putting on their plates. How do you suggest they prioritize it all? So the truth is that it can be very hard. And I think it's a matter of triage and prioritizing concerns. And the truth is that right now, we're in the midst of a fentanyl epidemic, which is illicitly manufactured and extremely potent. It's driving a lot of overdoses, including overdose deaths. So when I see a patient who comes in in opioid withdrawal with opioid use disorder, my top priority is typically starting a medication for their opioid use disorder to prevent opioid overdose deaths. It's important to keep in mind that starting a medication for opioid use disorder is also an evidence-based strategy to prevent HIV, and that should really be the top priority when someone comes in in opioid withdrawal or ready to initiate opioid use disorder treatment. How much more we're able to tackle in a first visit is really going to be tailored to the patient's goals, to what they need, and to their specific situation. So, for example, if a patient comes in to start buprenorphine and tells me that they used a syringe after a friend who has HIV a few hours ago, that's something very urgent. And in that visit, I'm going to try as hard as I can to talk to the patient about post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, and see if I can work that into the visit. But on the other hand, it sometimes is more patient-centered to prioritize starting the medication for opioid use disorder, like buprenorphine, during the first visit, and then asking the patient if it's okay to talk about HIV prevention in more detail the next time that you see each other. In either case, I think it's helpful to bring up HIV prevention in one way or another, just to show patients that you care about it. You care about not only treating their substance use disorder, but also preventing any complications and keeping them healthy long-term, and letting them know that you're here to help them work on reducing their HIV risk in whatever way is the most comfortable for them on that given day. One last question on this patient, doctor. Lab tests. What lab tests are needed before you can start somebody on PrEP? So to start someone on PrEP, we need a few different lab tests. First, we need to make sure that the patient does not have HIV infection, and we typically do that by checking an HIV antigen antibody test, which is also called a fourth-generation test. And in some cases, we also check an HIV RNA, which is also called a viral load. We check kidney function to ensure that patients have normal kidney function. We check their hepatitis B serologies to make sure that they don't have active hepatitis B. And then it's also an important opportunity to screen for other sexually transmitted infections, such as syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. And for women, we also want to check a pregnancy test. That if a patient is pregnant or does have active hepatitis B, we can still use PrEP. It's a little bit of a different conversation around risks and benefits, so we won't delve into that today. But those are important parts of the baseline evaluation. And then in patients who have a reliable means of contact, so a reliable telephone number, for example, I recommend starting PrEP as soon as the HIV test returns to avoid delays. And then you can follow up with the patient about additional test results as they come back. But any opportunity to get that prescription for PrEP in their hand is incredibly important because we know that when patients leave clinic, we sometimes do lose people to follow up. And here I'll also add that making some of these tests that I mentioned a standard part of addiction program intake labs can really facilitate starting PrEP rapidly. And in the Bridge Clinic where I practice, for example, our intake labs include kidney function, they include hepatitis B screening, and include an HIV test. And so that really allows our providers to start PrEP as soon as the first visit, if all of those lab results have come in. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Jessica Taylor from the Boston University School of Medicine in just a moment. You've been listening to a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine eHIV Review podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, 
We're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. EHIV Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with HIV and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, focuses that expert perspective on translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for EHIV Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about EHIV Review, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. And one more thing. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found the information useful, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find it as well. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Jessica Taylor from the Boston University School of Medicine and Boston Medical Center, and we've been talking about strategies to help people who inject drugs avoid HIV infection. So to continue our practice-oriented discussion, if you would, please, doctor, bring us another patient scenario. Let's consider the case of a 39-year-old woman with severe opioid and stimulant use disorders. She has supported herself for many years with transactional sex and shares injection equipment with her primary male partner only. She tells you that she and her primary partner never use condoms for sex and that she uses condoms about half the time with male clients. When you bring up HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP as an HIV prevention strategy, she's very interested, but she's understandably angry that no one has ever talked to her about PrEP before. She says, you mean to say I've been out here all these years and there's something that could make me not get it and I've never heard of it? So you've got a patient who's upset. She's angry because not one of her previous healthcare providers ever told her about PrEP. How do you respond? First and foremost, I think it is so important to validate the patient's anger and concern. You know, this is really a missed opportunity. The CDC has recommended PrEP for people who inject drugs as far back as 2013. And if this patient has really been reporting high-risk behaviors to her providers all of these years, opportunities have been missed and she's been let down by not being offered PrEP sooner. And I think the best approach is just to be honest and share those things with the patient. And, you know, in cases like this, I often am candid with my patients that I feel angry about it too. My other clinical role is that I'm an HIV specialist, so I see patients after they've been diagnosed. And in that first visit with a new patient, when you're looking through the chart and you see all of the times that they've touched the healthcare system and HIV prevention has not been addressed, it's really frustrating. We are missing a lot of opportunities. And that's why I'm really glad that we're having this conversation today so we can really start to make HIV prevention a routine part of the care that we're providing to people who inject drugs and others who have risk. Missed opportunities. Uh, In your experience, what are the primary factors that contribute to them? I think there are a number of important factors that contribute in cases like this patient's and others like her. So first, we know that people who inject drugs have lower knowledge about PrEP than other populations who could benefit. And that, again, relates to our failures as a medical system to educate our patients about the options that are available to them. We also know that people who inject drugs face multiple competing medical priorities. And then we know that provider stigma and stigma from the medical system is a real issue. So providers are less comfortable prescribing PrEP to people who who inject drugs than to other populations. And we know that prior bad experiences with the medical system, where people with substance use disorders have not been treated with respect, can often discourage them from seeking care. Finally, we know that marketing efforts have not necessarily been targeted to people who inject drugs and may have left people with the impression that PrEP is not an important strategy to prevent injection-related HIV infection. 
So I would say that as providers, we really have an important responsibility to educate our patients who have risk for HIV acquisition about all of the HIV prevention strategies that are available, including PrEP. And even if patients are ultimately not interested in PrEP, the conversation itself is a very important intervention because it empowers the patient to share the information with other people in their network and also because it tells the patients that the provider cares about them and cares about preventing HIV in whatever way is the most comfortable for them. Let me jump ahead a little bit, doctor. Let's say you've talked with this patient, you've educated her, and she knows the risks and benefits of daily PrEP. Her baseline labs, everything else checks out. She's a good candidate for PrEP, and she's ready to get started. What type of follow-up should she have? Great question. So our current CDC guidelines recommend follow-up every three months for patients on PrEP and prescribing no more than a 90-day supply at a time to ensure patients get that every three-month follow-up. We know, though, that people who inject drugs face very complex structural barriers psychosocial barriers to having follow-up care, and those include things like unstable substance use disorders, homelessness, criminal justice involvement. And for all of those reasons, we recommend more frequent follow-up to support adherence and address any concerns in populations that face a lot of barriers. In my practice, for example, when I start PrEP in my bridge clinic or in someone with an unstable substance use disorder, I recommend following up at least once a month, often more frequently. And one strategy that we've used to make that happen is to time PrEP follow-ups to align with buprenorphine follow-ups. So in our bridge clinic, for example, we see a lot of patients once a week, and we really want to capitalize on those weekly touches as great opportunities to not only do the buprenorphine follow-up, but also just check in on how the PrEP is going. Have they missed doses? Are there any side effects that we should talk about? Any adherence concerns? Any ways that we can support the patient? So I think the moral of the story here is that our current CDC guidelines were not necessarily written for patients that face very complex psychosocial and structural barriers, and we want to do follow-up that is a little bit more frequent, in most cases once a month. I would say another important strategy is to utilize patient navigation services if they're available where you practice. And patient navigators can fulfill a lot of roles, like helping patients identify safe spaces to store medications, thinking about whether a shorter prescription with refills might be a safer strategy if they face medication loss or theft in a shelter setting, for example, and also just providing support for patients that are juggling a lot and will have the added task of taking a daily medication for PrEP. One last question, Dr. Taylor, and it's probably one you've heard before. A patient asks you, how long do I need to be on PrEP? Have you found patients worry about getting stuck on something they're going to have to take for the rest of their lives? That is a concern that I hear very frequently when I'm talking about PrEP. Many of the patients that I'm discussing PrEP with are young people who are not on any chronic medications, and the idea of being stuck on a medication for the rest of their lives is really scary and very off-putting. And so I really talk to them about what we know about HIV risk and what our guidelines tell us. So our current guidelines recommend PrEP for anyone who has had risk in the last six months. And the way I frame that in my conversations is to say, listen, this is something recommended until you have had a six-month period without risk. So without sharing injection equipment, without a sexual event that is higher risk for HIV acquisition. So really just six months. And I think it's important to emphasize that, particularly for young people, that this is something that can be reassessed each visit. They're not committing to lifelong medication. You're in this with them. And you're really only going to recommend it when the benefits outweigh the risks. So you will be a part of that reassessment process. What I often also hear in these conversations is a patient tell me that they actually don't need PrEP because they're in my clinic starting buprenorphine. So their plan is that they will never use drugs again. They sometimes say they will never have sex again. And it's a little bit challenging to navigate because we want to make sure that we're supporting patients and making a very positive plan for their health and not expressing any doubt about their interest in or ability in staying in recovery. So I usually, again, respond with a positive and say, 
That's fantastic. I'm so glad you're here. You haven't used for two weeks, and that is a major accomplishment. And our current guidelines tell us that we should keep you on PrEP for five and a half more months because it's a six-month recommendation after the last period of risk. And I found that framing things that way both gives patients a discrete time to expect to be on PrEP, but also doesn't undermine the efforts that they're making to stay in recovery. Because, you know, when someone comes in and they're ready, we really need to be a part of that plan while also taking measures to protect them in the event that there is relapse or that there is recurrent risk. Thank you, Dr. Taylor, for sharing your insights and expertise on today's cases. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing how our learning objectives have been addressed in our discussion. Uh, So to begin, our first learning objective Appropriate screening for both injection-related and sexual-related HIV risks in PWID as a prelude to counseling for PrEP. What are the key things our listeners need to know? First, it's important to keep in mind that sexual and injection-related HIV risk co-occur in people who inject drugs. We really need to screen for both. It's also important that we make HIV screening a standard part of our assessments so that we're doing it consistently, and so that it's normalized and patients understand that it is a standard part of care. It's also important that we help our patients accurately assess their own HIV risk and that we offer all of the evidence-based strategies that we have in the toolbox, including PrEP. And then finally, I recommend letting patients guide the timing and pace of PrEP discussions. If someone is feeling very uncomfortable because of opioid withdrawal, it might not be the best day to delve into the details of PrEP, but by bringing it up and opening the door for a next visit, you can really create an opportunity. And our second learning objective, the barriers to PrEP uptake among PWIDs and provider-level and system-level strategies that can help improve PrEP access. So as we discussed, people who inject drugs do face many unique barriers to accessing PrEP. These include more limited knowledge, marketing efforts that have excluded people who inject drugs, and real failures on behalf of the medical system to offer PrEP to people who inject drugs. We also know that homelessness, incarceration, and lack of safe storage places make taking daily medications more of a barrier. That doesn't mean it's impossible, though. And at a systems level, we should really be addressing HIV prevention consistently in all patients and should think about ways to implement strategies to support people who inject drugs in both starting and continuing PrEP. These can include frequent visits, community-based navigation, and co-locating PrEP care where people who use substances already access services so that they don't have to go to a different clinic, a separate visit, in order to get their HIV prevention. Finally, I would say that we should include PrEP in our public health response to outbreaks alongside all of the other evidence-based strategies that we're working to scale right now. Dr. Jessica Taylor from the Boston University School of Medicine and Boston Medical Center, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehivreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, available online to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, NPs, PAs, nurses, HIV specialists, OBGYNs, infectious disease physicians, and others involved in the care of patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.
The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Science Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.